0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. This morning's scripture comes from Romans 12, 1 through 5. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and this and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all others." This is the word of God.
1: This morning we're stepping into our third and final chapter in our peacemaking series. I hope this has been meaningful for you. Each different chapter we have a journal that goes along with it, whether you have it in, in, in print or you can get it online. That's meant to be a companion for you. Uh, for those who are jumping in today, just to let you guys know what we've done so far, is we began with talking about what does it mean to find peace, What does it mean to find peace with God within ourselves? What does it mean to find peace with church? We talked about uh, practices to be able to find and discover peace and protect peace in our life. And then the second chapter was exploring uh, a vocabulary of peacemaking. What does it mean for peacemakers to be able to learn to listen well, the redemptive art of listening, and then having a vocabulary that fosters peace. And then uh, last week we talked about, last time we gathered, we talked about the power of art as it can inspire peace in our world. And so today, we're going to step into this third chapter, and this next section that we're going to be doing together is we're going to be looking at ways for us as followers of Jesus, how can we step into the needs in this world with the hopes and the dreams to be able to foster peace, to be, be able to be peacemakers in particular areas of our society where there is a need for Christ's peace. And so for today, we're going to have a meaningful and challenging discussion around what does it mean for us to be peacemakers in the place of racial justice, and we're going to reflect on the peacemaking of Dr. King. So let me structure this sermon in two different parts. First, uh, the first part of this sermon, I want to talk about what does it mean for peacemakers we must first see racism for what it is, and then secondly, we're going to make peace uh, in this world equipped with love. And with justice. So, first we're talking about seeing seeing racism for what it is, and then making peace with love and justice. It's about recognition and then response. Seeing racism for what it is, it presents more of a challenge than it might actually than we might actually realize. Because for us to truly see racism for what it is, we must forego our comforts and our own naivety. So we have to be willing to step into conflicts and conversations that oftentimes we feel very ill-prepared to do, and we actually don't see happening in our culture all that often. We do this, though, because we are called to be peacemakers and not peacekeepers. We're called to make peace, not keep the peace. And there's a big difference between the two. I'm struck by Dr. King's words said nearly 60 years ago when he said this, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. For Dr. King, the great stumbling block was not fascist, or overt racists, but moderates. Moderates who wanted to just keep peace. And keeping the peace was a negative peace, which was the absence of tension. Like, we're just, things feel okay. Let's just keep peace. And it reminds me of, like, for me, oftentimes, you you have a picture of, like, getting back together with your family at Thanksgiving, and everyone's goal is, like, can we just keep the peace, not venture into anything difficult or challenging, right? Uh, For Dr. King, when it comes to, the issues of his world, he says, that's a negative piece. Because there's something more important. There's a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. Is this the idea of the world being remade the way it should, like the idea, the Jewish idea of shalom? That's positive peace. True peacemaking is willing to be voluntarily afflicted by seeing the truth, by feeling the truth, acknowledging and recognizing the truth. And as peacemakers, we begin with the goal of actually seeing the presence of racism in overt, and more hidden expressions. Though racism and ethnic oppression is not uniquely American, Christ followers in this country, uh, we must learn how racism has uniquely been a part of the American story. It began with the treatment of the indigenous people, and then nearly 400 years ago, the first enslaved African stepped foot in this, in this country and was welcomed by shackles and ushered to the auction block. And through the years, the expression of racism has adapted and has changed. It hasn't gone away. In many ways, racism is America's original sin. The farmer and poet Wendell Berry calls it our hidden wound. And many people might object with that word hidden For some people, it's not all that hidden. Before we contend with racism, we must begin to see it for what it is. I'm reminded of the obscure story from Numbers 21. Go with me on this one for a little bit. The Hebrew people, they had turned from God. They had turned from God and deadly serpents began to plague their camp, causing many of them to die. As death began to ran through their community, people began to turn back to God again, as it is the habit, right, of Turning from God, consequence, turning back to God. And God decided to heal the people. But God chose a specific way for them to experience healing. God instructed Moses to construct uh, a bronze snake on a pole, as we see here. An image of their very source of death. And here God tells the community, if you want to live, you're going to have to look at the snake. What a bizarre way for God to create a source of healing, for, for this traumatic icon to be the actual source of healing, that this the result of their wickedness would be the only way, by seeing it, they could live. This story has been instructive for me because I think for many communities who have turned from God, we must learn, for us to find our road towards healing, we need to be able to see the wickedness of our people, of our time, of our community. We need to look to see how we have caused suffering, how we have caused trauma in our society. And if we want to have hope of redemption and restoration, we must learn to see. Simply put, restoration requires recognition. But that kind of awareness is hard. The temptation for us will be to sidestep the pain of that awareness. It's too difficult. The temptation might be to turn off or turn away or fast forward the things that are pushing in on us. But ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is often privilege, and it does not lead to justice. I am reminded by a pastor, Brenda Salter McNeil. She has this wonderful... uh, Reconciliation roadmap that I I saw a couple years ago that stayed with me, and it's uh, here is a community of people entering into a process, a roadmap of sorts, and what what it requires is there there is this this type of seeing, this recognition creates a catalytic event. Something, something strong, something, it's like a, chem, like a chemistry term, there's something that's going to be released. And either this individual, by seeing this, will either choose to go into preservation, where that narrative is distanced and pushed away, or they're going to be able to be willing to go and see it and actually begin a journey of transformation. But that takes a sense of openness. It takes a sense of uh, willingness to be disrupted for them to do that. But we know that if we're able to push through this powerful awareness that transformation can take place, and peacemaking only resides in that transform, uh, transformative process. It's interesting to me because I think most Christians would say, well, I haven't chosen preservation, right? Like, I'm willing to go through that, yet many of us, I'm not sure if we've gone through that process, especially culture, uh, churches, communities, I'm not sure if collectively, if we've been able to go through this process together. I think especially for me and my my experience in mostly white spaces and white churches, we have a tactic to get out of this transformative process. And the tactic is what our goal is. Our goal is we're going to be colorblind. We're going to treat all people the same. I don't see color. I'm not racist. I'm going to treat everyone the same. We're going to see everyone the same. Uh, all people are people. That's, you know, that's, that sounds good, but actually, it just protects preservation. Instead of being colorblind, we must be willing to see, to see color and the differences that color has meant for so many people in this world. Colorblindness actually is one of the greatest allies to a racialized society. Blindness allows unexamined racism to flourish. And as we furthered the tragic sound of silence and indifference, and oftentimes with colorblindness, nothing has to change. So how do we know colorblindness is rooted in privilege? Well, because communities of color do not ask for and do not celebrate colorblindness. They want those, especially with privilege, to learn to see. In our scripture reading, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This church in Rome is a community built on power hierarchy. There's a lot of different people coming together, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be the people of God together with all those dynamics at play. And Paul says this. He began by saying, you know, offer yourself living sacrifices. Like, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to me. And then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul's saying there's patterns to your society, and as people of God, you cannot conform to it anymore. Before we move on, you need to learn to see the patterns that are at play that are far from the kingdom of God. And that's still the case for you and I today. We need to be people who are carefully studying the patterns of our world that are far from the heart of God, the patterns that give lip service to freedom and liberty and justice for all. Why is it today that there's a pattern that one out of every four black men will spend time in prison with clear disparity on the length of sentences against black or white offenders? Why is there a pattern of systematic inequality of pay, of housing, of provision? Why is there this pattern of a tragic parade of another black man killed at the hand of those commissioned to protect All of these patterns foster a type of racial division and doubled standard that's far from the kingdom of God. And the Bible implores us, see the patterns of this world and do not conform. You are not to enact those patterns because you are members of a different kingdom. Reject those patterns and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In many ways, what Paul's saying is, allow the Holy Spirit to expand you Learn new way of thinking, of seeing, recognize, be able to push through that catalytic event of being able to see and being disruptive. Be more aware and allow that awareness to transform you. It is then and only then that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I find this sequence in this chapter so wise and beautiful. The sequence in Romans chapter twelve is: we offer ourselves sacrificially to God. We seek awareness and non-conforming to the patterns of that are far from Jesus. And we do this not just so we can be like rebellious and you know countercultural. No, we do this so that we can understand what God would have us do, what God would have us be as a people, how how like we can live differently. Offer an alternative kind of love and community. And then what happens next in Romans 12 is then Paul describes what that would lead to, what God's learning, God's will would lead to. And in Romans 12, it says, it begins to describe, like, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And then Paul begins to speak of a community built around mutuality, belonging, giftedness, empowerment how we can be a community that Dr. King would call the beloved community. Paul says to the church, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. This is what all of that is leaning to. This nonconformity, being transformed, is all about being a different kind of community built on sincere love that can reject Things that are evil but cling to what is good, a community that belongs to one another and needs to one another. This is the beloved community that Dr. King would speak of. All of this work, this nonconformity and transformation, allows us to be people marked by humility, love, and service, to make peace in the face of racism, that protests the patterns of this world and enacts the power of sincere love. This kind of community rejects the worldly patterns of poverty and isolation, oppression cannot be tolerated in it, racism and in all the forms of bigotry and discrimination and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood as we become the beloved community. That is our calling as the church, and that's the legacy of Dr. King, on December 5th, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, the African-American community gathered to take a vote. Sparked by the general resolve of Rosa Parks, the community gathered together to, and voted to boycott the buses, which was a very disruptive thing for that city. At that meeting, they asked an educated young pastor to speak to the crowd. And this is how Dr. King would step into the spotlight of the civil rights movement. He was 26 years old. Anyone here in the room 26? Anybody? Would y'all please stand? We're my 26-year-olds. Y'all please stand. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. Okay, that was the quickest stance over there, Dana. I see you there. But it, I mean, I just want to embody this. So 26-year-olds, Dr. King, stepping into the spotlight here. He was marked by a sense of uh, humility and of power. Since a sense of resolve, at the age of 26, he began this and he would, for the next 12 years, he would serve and minister before he was assassinated. Way too young. Dr. King was a wonderful example of what a peacemaker fashioned in the tradition of Jesus could look like. There are many things, I, 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 it pained me to write this sermon because there's so many different things that we could talk about with the legacy of Dr. King around peacemaking. I wanted to share three practices as we begin to step into the role of peacemaking in this world, especially in the presence of uh, division and racism, there's three practices I want to leave you with from Dr. King's life uh, of how we can learn to make peace equipped with love and justice. Dr. King was passionate that the means by which we arrive at justice is as important as the end. The means by which we... Arrive at justice is as important as the end. The way we get to the end is as important as getting to the end. We must learn to oppose injustice without picking up the weapons of hatred and of violence. Uh, Forgive me for using labels. I hate using labels like this, but it's just a lot easier, which is why we use labels like this. But um, this is where I think a lot of progressive people get it wrong. I think a lot of tradi- more traditionally minded people might struggle with the seeing part, like the first half of the sermon, like recognition, seeing things for what it is. Because I, I think for a lot of us, it uh, just demands a willingness of releasing. But I think progressives get the second part wrong. Because they struggle, with they want it so, so much to get to the righteous end, but they lose something along the way. It's tempting to use oppressive devices to fight oppression. It's tempting, it's tempting to fight hatred by hating people. Dr. King was able to battle evil while seeing the evildoer as also a child of God. Dr. King was able to defeat violence through the power of nonviolence. We can't get to the goal of the beloved community by invoking hatred to the oppressor, because there potentially a part of that community too. We can't be reckless on the way to that goal. We will not only lose our witness if we do that, but we will also lose part of our own humanity along the way. What a tragedy it would be to get to some righteous, good objective and lost our goodness in the journey. There's a surprising force with hatred we have to be very careful with. There's a surprising force, and we end up, we have a tendency to become like those whom we hate. I have an example from this morning. Can I share it? It's not in the sermon notes, sorry. On the way to church, I was reminded how much I hate distracted drivers. Hate them, all right? I'm driving on Mopac, getting to church. Someone's not only looking at their phone this way, which means they're texting, or through this way. They're watching a video, and not even at their steering wheel, down here. And I am looking at this guy so, like, I am just, I wish I could talk to him. Like, I have so much judgment and hatred, and I almost get in an accident. <laughs> you get that? Like, I am so distracted by the distracted driver that I almost get into an accident, right? Like, I'm just staring at him with, like, what What are you even looking at? Like, what are you even looking at? And I almost rear-end someone. Like, you know, we end up becoming, like, the things that we hate. Distracted drivers really distract me. Or here's a little bit more of a touchy one, maybe for me, if I'm, or a little bit honest one. But I, um, I have a hard time with judgmental religious folk, all right? I know I'm not the only one in the room, but they are usually the target of my disdain, people who are, have a sense of pride or arrogance that dismiss and judge people quickly with a sense of religious superiority, a sense of pride in themselves. It stirs me. And the problem is, uh, guess what I become, the very thing I despise, the whiff of someone being a little bit religious or superior, all of a sudden, I get judgmental, condemning, not curious, dismissive, away with them, right? We end up having this great potential of becoming just like the one we hate. And I think that's why Paul sandwiched what he wrote in verse nine with this: "Love must be sincere." Hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. For Dr. King, what he would say, like this distinction is actually really, really, really important. It is good for us to hate what is evil. For us to be followers of Jesus, to be peacemakers, does not mean that we're flippant about what's going on in this world, but it's hating what is evil. Dr. King sought to make the distinction, our battle is not against the evildoer as much as it is evil. And Dr. King would go one very uncomfortable step further. That the evildoer is actually another victim of that evil. Does anyone find that teaching challenging? Like to actually have empathy and compassion for the evildoer? Yeah? You're going to hate this next part. <laughs> Dr. King teaches us that we will be te- tempted to see the evildoer and reduce them to just being a racist or a bigot, hateful or violent. Which, honestly, they might be all those things, but Dr. King he would add this that person was also once a child, and that child was given a poison. Racism or bigotry, they were given that poison and they were wounded by it. And this goes for like many issues. That person who was taught that all homosexuals were to be damned, that person who was discipled to believe that interracial marriage was against God's plan. That child who was taught a vocabulary that dehumanized people simply because where they came from, the color of their skin, their ethnicity, how they speak, their religion, the vocabulary that they were given as a young person. Each of those things stripped away a piece of that child's potential, their humanity. And it's really, really easy to see evildoers on the back end of all of that process with judgment and disdain for the violence or the oppression that they perpetuate. But Dr. King would also say that they have also been victimized by the power of hatred and of violence that resides in them now. They are the first victims and then they perpetuate that victimization upon this world and those whom they oppress. This shocking type of empathy That Dr. King points us to is the only way, the only way that I think we might get close to fulfilling Jesus' commandment for us to love thy enemy. Be able to understand that there is something that was done to them, a wound that was given to them as well. Dr. King taught us so passionately that when radical, nonviolent love meets oppression and demands justice, that there can be a transformative force that converts, which is the very hand of God. And in the end, when that freedom is made for the oppressed, King would say that it's not just a single victory, but it's a double victory. It liberates not only the oppressed, but it also may liberate the oppressor. Dr. King is actually picking up Ephesians chapter 6, 10 and, uh, in verse 10, says, when it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers, and forces of evil. Peacemakers are able to maintain this distinguishing ability that there's a fundamental difference between the systems of oppression and the personhood of the oppressor, who is also the image of God. It's important for us that the means by which we get to that end is is based on the love and the mercy of Jesus fashioned in Christ's tradition. The second legacy that we have from Dr. King is the expansiveness of justice. For Dr. King, a peacemaker cannot be concerned with one expression of, of oppression. As you heard in the video earlier, he said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. People often think that Dr. King was just concerned with the civil rights movement for the black community, and that's not at all accurate. King called out what he what he, made, uh, he called the America's three-headed monster. Racism was one of them, but so was poverty and militarism. Dr. King spoke out against the war in Vietnam. At the time of his death, he was also planning a multiracial protest movement around uh, social economic change called the Poor People's Campaign, inviting all people in America to come together and demand economic change. Dr. King saw that justice was expansive, it was an inclusive force. And which, meant to, uh, which meant if he is going to be doing all these things, tackling all these things, that he offended just a lot of people. We, uh, we have this day where we celebrate Dr. King, we come together, uh, we remember him, we listen to the speeches, but when he was alive, America did not like Dr. King. Listen to this, I find this so interesting. In 1964, a Gallup poll asked Americans, which are the three Americans that they had the least respect for? <laughs> Doctor came second, the second least respected person in all of America at that time, with 42% of America saying, Yeah, we don't respect him. The only person that beat him was Governor George Wallace. For those who know anything about history, one of the most despicable, <laughs> I'm, I'm judging, I think I'm okay to judge, but <laughs> Governor of Alabama whose slogan was segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So Dr. King just barely missed out on being first place on that one. It didn't matter to Dr. King. He had a sense of spiritual resolve. He had a clarity of mission. As a peacemaker, he would not be siloed into one issue. This expansive call for justice was based on God's view of all of humanity. It led to the creation of the beloved community, and it was powered by the deep conviction that nothing changes like love. As Dr. Cornel West said, summarizing King's life and work, he said, justice is what love looks like in public. That's what King lived for, displaying love in public for all who needed it. The third and the final legacy I think we should take with us as we explore what it means to make peace in this conversation is we must hold on to the resilient, essential presence of hope. For us to go into this good work, we have to be people of hope. How in the world can we have moral fortitude and the spiritual stamina to do this work, to seek wherever there's injustice, to see, to truly see the wound of racism or oppression and not respond in violence or in despair, the answer is we must have hope. Dr. King was a man who lived in Paul's words, hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Dr. King, he, he rejected all that was evil, but you could tell that he was clinging to to hope. He had the ministry of hope. This last summer, some friends and I, we did this pilgrimage part of it, what we're going to do here as a church in May. And it was an experience of seeing. It was disruptive. It was difficult. It was painful. It was, it was heavy. There were times where it felt, uh, just kinda had to take, we just had to have a time out. It was just felt too much. Uh, and our trip, I remember, it ended worshiping in Dr. King's church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. And I walked into church feeling heavy from all of the experiences that we had in those days preceding, and as someone who's used to being in predominantly white spaces, aka Austin, <laughs> uh, walking to Ebenezer Baptist was incredibly unique. It was a beautiful experience. And though it felt, uh, I think it was really good for me to have the experience, of, like feeling like, okay, I'm... Not in the majority of the population here. I felt very at home when I realized that they live on vine time as well. the church started late, half the room was empty. Uh, You were there. You remember that. And um, so I felt at home. You know, like, ah, this is my people, right? Uh, But more than that, I, I was comforted by the palpable presence of joy. Of joy in worship. The sense of hope the resilience of that community, it buoyed me with well, all the heaviness that I had felt. That also, I need to make some space in my heart for hope, my soul for hope. It made me think, and I don't know how this is going to come across. I probably should have talked about some, to someone about this before. But it made me think about the, the long and unlikely journey that black Christians have traveled in our country. How the black American experience, how it, for many it began... Many enslaved people learned of God from the hands of their enslaver. They learned of the Bible as the Bible was used as a tool to teach submission. And these enslaved people were taught that this is what Jesus was up for: this, you know, this hierarchy, this power dynamic. And you would think that many in that community would reject the Christian tradition. But I think instead they actually heard the story of how God parted the Red Sea and delivered the enslaved nation. That they saw Jesus' solidarity not with those in power, not with those with dominance, but those who were suffering. They clung to the promise of Jesus' return when he will make all things right and when justice will flow out like a river that those things were not lost on that community. And so when I sat in Ebenezer and I saw the full embodied worship of that community, I realized that the message of the gospel, the true message was lost on all those oppressors, lost on all those individuals who had deafness of hearing and blindness of seeing, but the word of hope was ready, it was eager to find its way for those who needed it who needed the gospel, a story of deliverance, of salvation, of social change. It belonged to them, and it can belong to us, too. If we see ourselves as participants in the theater of God's unfolding justice, if we see ourselves as active members in the beloved community, that that can be our hope, too. When you hear Dr. King's speeches, he consistently calls out oppression he calls it out but more consistently he preaches hope in the presence of injustice when it's really hard to see hope present he calls it out dr king was able to see say it be able to say it in the words outside the lincoln memorial when he shared i have a dream it might not be realized now but i have a dream dr king would ever be able to give hope with promising how long not long Dr. King would be able to to speak with conviction about the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it's going to bend towards justice. And you can even hear it in the last minute of his last sermon that he gives. The very next day after giving this sermon, he'd be assassinated. And it's interesting, when you listen to this last message, he has a sense of suspicion that his time was coming near, but he wanted to give the people one last message. Let's listen to that message now.
0: Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. (laughs)
1: Dr. King was, the last message he wanted to give was a message of hope. A hope of what is not visible, but it's there, it's present. And he knew that the road, the struggle that this community was going to have, was, they were going to have to do it without him. But if they can learn how to have hope, they would be able to journey together. And I, and I know that there are even today people in this room who have their own struggles. They're, trying, they're battling, maybe it's not oppression and racism, but it's their own struggle, their own sense of loss, their own sense of confrontation in their world. And you just need to know that there's a God of hope who is a redeemer. He's on your side. He's not going to leave you. He is steadfast. He will bring you into fullness of life. And his love is everlasting The only way for us to walk in this journey and do it faithfully is to be people rooted in the hope that God is alive and cares and is going to restore me and us. Dr. King ultimately knew that there's a God of justice and that one day we would have to give account to this God, every single person. And when we enter heaven or when Jesus returns, this eternal kingdom will be established in peace Violence and oppression will be a distant memory. The lion and the lamb will finally lay down together. Hatred, division, and racism will, be, ch- will they'll be confiscated upon entry. And peace will be the air that we breathe. Oh, what a day. What a day that would be to truly be the beloved people. What a day that would be. I'm impatient for it. I want it now. And perhaps that's where Dr. King would say, don't wait for it. Bring that kingdom here now. Make peace now. Believe in the power of radical love and make justice public for all. Lord Jesus, I pray you would make this church an outpost of that beloved community with a sense of humility, of belonging and mutuality, of sincere love, where we are able to push against that which is evil and cling to what is good. Pray that you'd give us the wisdom and discernment to be able to do that. Praise pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.